learning of a heated Oval Office meeting Friday where Trump allies floated ideas of ways to overturn the election. I want to go straight to CNN's Jeremy Diamond. Jeremy, just when we thought we couldn't hear anything crazier, what are we learning about this meeting? Well, it's very clear that as President Trump continues to refuse to accept that he lost this presidential election to President-elect Joe Biden, the president is also still consulting aides and allies for more ways that he could possibly move to continue to contest this election or at least undermine the legitimacy of Joe Biden's election as the 46th president of the United States. We're told that on Friday the president met with uh, Michael Flynn, uh, the former national security advisor, uh, who was pardoned by the president despite having pled guilty to counts of lying to the FBI. And and his attorney, Sidney Powell, who has been trafficking these deranged conspiracy theories about the 2020 election that have been roundly and thoroughly debunked. Uh, the president, nonetheless, during this meeting, apparently was talking about potentially naming Sidney Powell uh, as a special counsel within the government to investigate voter fraud in the 2020 election, despite a total lack of evidence of any widespread voter fraud in this election. And he also discussed, uh, apparently, this idea uh, that Michael Flynn has brought up recently uh, about using Marshall law uh, to uh, rerun the 2020 presidential election. This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Maya Culpa podcast. With less than a month before Trump's nightmare presidency comes to an end, deranged Donald is growing increasingly unhinged from reality. While he sees the writing on the wall as West Wing staffers begin to pack up their belongings, Trump has barricaded himself deeper into his office. Staffers report an almost Colonel Kurtz-like atmosphere with Trump digging through piles of paper, like needle in a haystack looking for signs of vindication. I watched a snail crawl along the edge of a straight razor. That's my dream. It's my nightmare. Last month, Trump had grudging acceptance of his loss. But staffers say he has now reversed himself after repeated exposure to Giuliani and other dubious conspiracy superspreaders who have enabled the president. It's gotten to the point where he's completely and totally dug in on the matter and throws his daily fucking tantrums, foaming at the mouth about those who have wronged him. Between you people, don't answer, don't talk to me that way. You're just a you're just a lightweight. Don't talk to me that way. Don't talk to, I'm the president of the United States. Don't ever talk to the president that way. They say he has abdicated any and all responsibility for leading the country, and he spends his day watching Fox and Newsmax in a state of permanent rage. Republican leaders say Trump cannot be reasoned with to accept reality. Any news that does not comport with his view of how the election was rigged and stolen is immediately dismissed as fake and the messenger exiled. Get off my the Electoral College's affirmation of a Biden victory only served to agitate Trump as he watched his once iron grip on the Republican Party begin to slip. Mitch McConnell's acknowledgement of Joe Biden as president-elect did nothing to move the president towards even the most resigned acceptance. Rather, he was besieged with rage at the perceived betrayal by McConnell and other senior Republican senators who took to the floor to congratulate Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. While there is fear that some GOP congressmen may use January 6th as some kind of Hail Mary protest in hopes of fomenting a bloodless coup, there is growing consensus amongst the party that it's fucking over and Trump just needs to move aside. 
Sources believe that this January 6th certification, rather than being some last-minute attempt to hand Trump the election, will be the moment when the rest of the party gets in line behind McConnell and waves goodbye to the president. To understand Donald Trump and his belief in a massive election conspiracy, you must understand Trump's innate narcissism and how it paralyzes him from hearing any news that he finds unflattering. It simply doesn't register. Trump's lie that the election was rigged, depriving him of a second term, will persist once the president leaves office. But Trump sits atop a massive slush pile of money, having raised over $250 million and counting, which he can deploy and lay the groundwork for a 2024 campaign, which of course will use the big lie of his victory as its antecedent. The president's unfounded claims of voter fraud and misinformation surrounding the 2020 election are proving to be lucrative for Team Trump and his allies. In furtherance of that is the likely launch of a 24-hour Trump media platform, which will give the lie the oxygen it requires to live and grow. Still, four years is a fucking lifetime. No, three lifetimes in American politics. Trump must first face the gauntlet of accountability and potential criminal indictment before he can seriously consider his next move. Nevertheless, he will persist because Trump is Trump and he can't fucking help himself. Beyond that, Trump also deeply believes in the lies he creates. It's part of his pathology, like George Costanza, that it's not a lie if you believe it. And Trump believes beyond measure in all of it. Jerry, just remember. It's not a lie, if you believe it. Now that he has exhausted all legal remedies in the courts and the Electoral College has voted, Trump is left with very few options. According to CNN, in his moment of deepest denial, Trump has told some advisors that he will refuse to leave the White House on Inauguration Day, only to be walked down from the ledge. So let's be clear, Trump will leave office on January 20th, if not sooner. The only prospect before horrifying for him than losing is to be escorted off the property in handcuffs by the U.S. Marshals in front of a billion people. That said, he would become a martyr to his most hardened and deranged supporters. I still hold the possibility that Trump will leave well before January 20th for a Mar-a-Lago and just not return. I'm not leaving. That's what the president has reportedly told his staff flat out refusing to accept defeat and vacate the White House. Trump has reportedly even told some advisors that he will refuse to leave the White House on Inauguration Day. One of his advisors tells CNN, quote, he's throwing a temper tantrum. He's going to leave. He's just lashing out. The latest amongst Trump's most deranged followers is something far more frightening. Disgraced former General Michael Flynn went on Newsmax late last week to urge the president to declare fucking martial law. Yes, martial law. He wants the president to go into these contested states and seize the voting machines and force new elections. I'm not doing Flynn any justice here, so we'll allow him to speak for himself as he did on Greg Kelly. Also order, he could order the, the um, in, within the swing states, if he wanted to, he could take military capabilities and he could place them in those states and basically rerun an election in each of those states. I mean, it's not unprecedented. I mean, these people out there talking about martial law, it's like it's something that we've never done. We've done, martial law has been instituted 64, 64 times, Greg. This is madness on the highest level. Deranged, crazy shit. 
I'm reminded of Dr. Strangelove here in what has been contemplated and voiced by people who once held power in American government. The Bulwark's Tim Miller summed this all up the best in his tweet. Michael Flynn lying to the FBI was the biggest break the nation caught during the Trump years. The thought of the insane madman in the room when Trump was making decisions is fucking frightening. Expect the chaos to continue for the immediate future as the Trump administration continues to block President-elect Biden from receiving vital information. On Friday, Axios reported that Trump's acting defense secretary, Christopher Miller, halted Biden's transition briefings. This comes on the heels of a massive Russian hack into this nation's most sensitive cyber infrastructure, including the Department of Homeland Security and the agency which monitors our nuclear stockpile. Experts say it is the largest such hack in history and is a developing story as both the scope and damage grow by the day. Good evening. America under virtual invasion. That's what Senator Dick Durbin is calling a massive Russian cyber attack on U.S. government agencies. The scope of the hack is now widening. America's nuclear weapons agency among those breached. That confirmed today by the Department of Energy. Officials say they found suspicious activity in the networks that maintain our nuclear weapons stockpile. Senior intelligence officials say there is little doubt the Russians did this and that they're still at it. Donald Trump, though, is nowhere to be found on any of this. He has lost all interest in doing anything beyond further propagating his big election lie, getting revenge on perceived enemies, and issuing a stream of potential pardons. He is adamant to not wanting his family or immediate circle targeted by a Biden administration. The more pressing question for me is, if he will pardon the Tiger King, Joseph Maldano, something he has expressed willingness to do in the past. Sheldra, Joe Exotic is how many people know him. He mailed off this form to the Federal Election Commission last Friday, announcing his intent to run for president as an independent. His committee is called Joe Exotic for the people of America. His remaining obsession beyond pardoning his entire corrupt circle is to bedevil the Biden administration with its own special counsel. He wants Hunter Biden investigated, as well as his baseless claims of voter fraud in the 2020 election. But more than anything, he wants payback. Trump remains deeply aggrieved at the special counsel investigation led by Robert Mueller into ties between his campaign and Russia. Trump also remains focused on settling scores. Tonight, the Associated Press reporting he is considering pushing his incoming acting attorney general, Jeffrey Rosen, to appoint a special counsel to carry out a federal tax investigation of Hunter Biden. That would mean, in effect, the new president would be powerless to stop it from going on within the Justice Department. And finally, Business Insider dropped a fucking bombshell story on Friday morning showcasing the stunning greed of the Trump family. Jared Kushner approved the creation of a shell company that operated like a campaign within a campaign and secretly funneled millions of dollars in campaign cash to Trump family members. It took more than half of the Trump campaign's massive 1.26 billion war chest and was largely shielded from having to publicly report financial details. Kushner reportedly ordered daughter-in-law Lara Trump and other family members to serve on its board. This is a huge and developing story that Trump will undoubtedly deride as fake news. Untold millions of dollars are unaccounted for with zero explanation and campaign staffers are terrified. 
expect one of those preemptive pardons to be dotted out for Jared Kushner sooner than later. Every man knows her name. Every woman knows her face. When she walks into a room, all eyes are on her. She's Ivanka. And a woman like her deserves a fragrance all her own. A scent made just for her. Because she's beautiful. She's powerful. She's complicit. And now for the main event. My next guest is the brilliant New York Times bestselling author Seth Abramson. His latest book, Proof of Corruption, was released in September and is the final book in his massive and flawlessly executed Proof Trilogy, which begins with the 2018 publication of Proof of Collusion, which took readers through four decades of Trump's ties to Russia and how it culminated in his 2016 electoral victory. Each book is a masterwork of reporting and exhaustive guide to Trump corruption. Abramson's Twitter feed is a daily must-read for those looking to understand the big lie behind Donald Trump, as well as the rare journalist who is capable of separating the facts from the hype and zeroing in on the real danger. At the moment, Abramson is focused on Trump's final days and most ominously, the final 14, between the time Congress counts the votes for the Electoral College and certifies the president's victory on January 6th and Inauguration Day on January 20th. It is in this moment where we are at the greatest danger from Trump's authoritarian impulses. So let's listen now to that conversation. There's a lot going on today in the press. On December 14th, you wrote, retweet if you demand that every GOP politician in D.C. stand up tonight before a camera or a microphone and call Joe Biden the president-elect. Now, dozens of Republicans promised in November and earlier this month that they would speak out tonight. So far, we're hearing crickets. Talk to me about the seditious behavior happening from these Republicans who have openly supported Trump's baseless claims and the just as guilty senators and congressmen who have remained completely silent. Because personally, I'm curious if you believe that they will actually pay a real price, either through their judgment in history or from future voters, because it seems at the moment that they're paralyzed with fear of their own base to do anything at all. How does this play out in the long run? I think they'll pay a price in history. I don't know if they'll pay any price politically, because right now, as you and I know, Michael, it's the Trump party, not the Republican party. And pleasing this president is the first order of business for these politicians, and not just these politicians. Look at the fact that 19 attorneys general filed a lawsuit to throw out indiscriminately 20 million valid American ballots to try to declare Donald Trump the rightful winner of this election. Not to mention the fact that 126 members of the House of Representatives, all Republicans, signed on to that effort. And frankly, I think more would have signed on if it hadn't have been a, a midnight effort and they didn't have enough time to review all the pleadings. So it may be that when January 6th runs around, we're going to see far more than 126 
Republicans in the House stand up and say that Donald Trump's fake electors that voted in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, and New Mexico are actually real electors and say that he's the real president. And I worry at how many uh, senators we might see do that also, perhaps 40, because we've only seen about six or seven senators so far called Joe Biden the president-elect. I mean, it's just purely disgraceful. I mean, to try to overthrow the will of the people for what? For a man who cares about no one or anything other than himself. I mean, I know personally about trying to please Trump. It is an impossible task. You could please him on Monday and Tuesday, but when you fuck up and do something that he doesn't like, you shit canned on Wednesday or possibly Thursday, right? This is exactly what happened to me. I spent more than a decade trying to please a man who is so fra- his ego is so fragile and he's so sensitive to everything that he ended up legitimately throwing me under the bus for his dirty deeds, which was in part one of the reasons why I was forced to plead guilty going back in 2019. So I truly do know what it's like. Look, at, for example, what's happening with Bill Barr right now. What's your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's another, as you've said, Michael, in a long procession of individuals who showed fealty to Donald Trump over an extended period of time. And when they did something that displeased him, as you said, were were cast aside. With Bill Barr, it was the fact that he didn't reveal that there was an ongoing Hunter Biden investigation prior to the election. And the fact that he said that they had not found any sufficient evidence of voter fraud or really any at all that would have changed the results of the election. And apparently that enraged Donald Trump. Look, I think that he's impossible to please. I think he's incredibly difficult to cover for the media. And that's one of the things that I've struggled with with my books on Donald Trump is how to write about him. And I also think that he is um, incredibly difficult to, to prosecute. Um, as we have seen, and and to sue civilly, frankly, as we've seen for decades. So Donald Trump occupies this bizarre space in American culture where it is incredibly difficult to hold him to account. And he is constantly in a position where he is able to demand fealty from people and get it largely from the Republican Party. I mean, let's remember, 80% of Republican voters now say that Donald Trump is the rightful president and won this election. So it's not just politicians. It's not just people in the media. It's not just potential prosecutors. It's voters treat him in this special way, despite the fact, as you indicate, Michael, he has no interest in democracy. He has no interest in the United States of America as a concept or as a principle. No, he does not. You know, you bring up an interesting topic, which is lawsuits and what's going to happen to Donald Trump in the future. But what's happening right now? Like right now, I personally am involved in a lawsuit against Trump and the Trump organization. And here's what people don't realize. It is a long Hall battle. You're not going to be able to get Trump to settle. Trump doesn't settle with anyone because it goes against his nature being a tough guy, right? So you just have to have the wherewithal in order to continue the lawsuits. So when he screws over the little guy, the the dopes that are actually sending him in money now, because it's the same people, when he screws over the little guy, He knows, and I knew it was one of our tactics, that you don't have enough money in order to perpetuate that lawsuit, to keep it going. And so either you abandon it or you don't start it in the first place. My lawsuit 
is for the legal fees that he owes me. Look, what benefit did I get out of doing the NDA for Stormy Daniels or going after her to prevent her from her speaking on uh, 60 Minutes? None, right? It was directed and for the benefit of Donald J. Trump. And he acknowledged, not just in emails to people, um, that he was going to pay the legal fees. Now he chooses not to. So I am in it for the long haul. Just deposed Eric Trump. Soon we're going to be deposing Don and Alan Weisselberg, the CFO. And now we're even asking to depose Trump himself once he's out of office. So the key here is you have to be willing to take this for the long haul. Very much like what Schneiderman did to Trump uh, based on Trump University. Do you know that Trump had an opportunity to settle that early on through one of the other attorneys in the office for half a million dollars? And again, because of his ignorance and his arrogance, he decided to fight it all the way. And I believe it ended up costing him more than 26 million. Well, you know, and, and Michael, there's a sort of paradox, well, many paradoxes at the heart of Donald Trump, but I think that you identified one of them in your book. And that is that Donald Trump, as you indicate, is in many respects averse to conflict, but he is constantly in contestation with others through the legal system and through other means. And so he, he doesn't want to personally directly confront people, but he has positioned himself in the culture, in politics, in business, so that he is constantly contesting with others. What, what I would submit to you is that Donald Trump is not necessarily in a lawsuit with America, but he is in a contestation with American principles, democracy, rule of law, equality under law, and so on. And in the same way that he won't settle in a civil suit, he will never settle his contestation with, with America. Because right now, the democracy that we all believe in, except for Donald Trump, most of us believe in it, very clearly sent a signal that he should not return as president of the United States. That was a contestation that he lost, and he is refusing to settle it by refusing to acknowledge that he lost, by taking everything to the mat, by forcing the GOP like lemmings to jump over a cliff for him. And on January 6th, I mean, Mitch McConnell is terrified of this. We found out yesterday, Mitch McConnell was telling senators, please, I hope that not a single one of you will stand up on January 6th and say that Donald Trump is the rightful president under this uh, thing that Mo Brooks, the representative from Alabama, is trying to set up. Because if you do, we're all going to have to take a public vote saying whether we think Donald Trump is the president or not. And you and I both know, Michael, at least one will do his bidding. And the entire Senate will have to vote on these fake electors that, that Donald Trump put forward in seven states. And that, again, is taking everything to the utmost, refusing to settle, pushing for contestations that hurt everyone, but in various ways profit himself. For instance, the 208 billion or million, excuse me, that he's raised uh, since the election. Yeah, rest assured, he'll be raising a whole lot more than 208 million because these followers who obviously because of the pandemic are suffering financial issues each and every day, yet they're still willing to part with $1 to perpetuate this fraud that this man just continues to you know, to perpetuate and people just continue to promote. But, you know, um, Seth, as discussed on your Proof podcast this past October of 2020, you actually predicted that the Trump campaign would create fraudulent slates of electors to send to Congress in January of 2021 as part of its effort to overthrow American democracy. 
Now it seems that with Stephen Miller's comments, and I think Stephen Miller is the biggest asshole of the, basically anybody that's still there, his comments on Fox and Friends, Trump is indeed paving the way to try and make this happen. Can you explain to my listeners what is happening with these electors and how it will likely play out in reality? Yeah, well, let me let me start by saying this, Michael. During the impeachment back in January of 2020, there was this line that we got from the Republican Party that basically said, look, impeachment is a political process, not a legal process. And, and obviously that's true. It's senators who are the jurors, so it's necessarily a political process. But what we were told by Republicans is basically the rules of evidence don't apply. Laws don't apply. Standard protocols don't apply. This is a political process. Well, what we find now is the Republican Party telling Americans that elections are purely political processes. And of course, they are political. No one would say otherwise, right? But elections are both political and legal. There are certain protocols. There are certain procedures. There are certain standards. There are federal statutes. There's the Constitution. And what Republicans are saying is, no, no, no. National elections are about what you can get away with politically, period. Everything else doesn't matter. It's off the table. It's just, you know, force majeure, what you can get done because you have the votes to do it. So in this case, what they've done with these fake electors in the seven states that I mentioned, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, and New Mexico, is the Republican Party has realized that you can create uh, slates of electors for the Electoral College that have no legal legitimacy whatsoever, that weren't created by, uh, you know, the results of the vote, first of all, which is what has to happen, or even a state legislature or a governor or, or anyone else. Actually, a political campaign, according to the Republicans, can actually create slates of electors for the Electoral College, send them to D.C. on January 6th, and then see if you have the votes in Congress to get them to say that your fake slate of electors, unrelated to the results of the vote in those seven states, completely illegal, not sanctioned by statute or constitution or even legislature, see whether you can get those slates of electors voted on as the real electors. It's the ultimate a manifestation of treating elections as not governed by law or statute whatsoever, but simply here's what we can get away with based on the votes we have. Now, fortunately, Michael, they don't have enough votes in the Senate or the House. And so Joe Biden will be the president uh, on January 20th. Kamala Harris will be the vice president. I mean, but think about what he's doing here. I mean, I stated over 20 months ago when I stood before the Honorable Elijah Cummings, God rest his soul, and I said, my biggest fear and one of the reasons why I'm appearing today is I truly do not believe that there will be a peaceful transition of power under Trump. The fact that even one American, one American can believe that Joe Biden is not the rightful president come January 20th, to me, is just, it's basically a shit stain on our constitution that's put there by one man and one man only a man who wants to be a monarch he wants to be the king he wants to be the autocrat and he wants to be the kim jong-un the vladimir putin the erdogan of the united states of america and it's really sick well and here's the here's the thing that's scary to me and i think to a lot of other people david axelrod's been talking about this a lot on cnn donald trump has already floated the rhetoric that we know he's going to use starting on January 20th of 2021. He has said that Joe Biden will be quote unquote illegitimate if he is inaugurated on January 20th. 
we know where this is headed because he's already, you know, product testing his next line of rhetoric. On January 20th, 2021, and every day thereafter, Donald Trump is going to be either stating directly or implying indirectly that he is the legitimate president. And I have the same fear that Frank Fogluzzi expressed when he came on and talked to you, that what we're going to end up with is a non-peaceful transfer of power in the sense that Donald Trump will effectively declare a shadow presidency. He will you know, sit in his throne down at Mar-a-Lago. He will call it the Southern White House. He will effectively have a sort of shadow cabinet of advisors, and he will issue proclamations and deal potentially even with, with foreign leaders as though he is the rightful president. That's going to create an ongoing national security issue for the United States. And so in that sense, not with tanks in the streets, not with Donald Trump being dragged by force out of the White House, but in that sense, I think you're absolutely right, Michael, that we end End up with a non-peaceful transfer of power because you have two men in the United States effectively saying they're the legitimate president, and you simply can't have that as a matter of law and order, rule of law, democracy, or, or just any sort of sanity in our domestic and foreign policy. And that's why when I spoke to several of the individuals that are active with the Biden administration, I said to them what they need to do to stop him is Joe Biden needs to step away and allow the attorney general to investigate all of the allegations that have been raised and brought up against Trump, Ivanka, Jared, Trump Organization, etc., because he will be a thorn in Joe Biden's ass from day number one, as you have described. However, here's the only thing that I disagree with you on. While he will try to run a shadow government out of what we have called on this podcast, mea culpa, Magistan, Right. And he's going to be the president of his own country there with his administration by him interacting with foreign governments or acting in a way where he portrays himself as the president. It could easily be identified as a fair violation or it could actually be treated as treason. So, you know, there are many things that I have said to them, including the first thing that I would do. I would immediately on January 20th, my very first proclamation would be to remove Donald Trump's ability within which to obtain classified information. Because Donald Trump is a fucking threat, not just to this country, but to the world. Because what's in his head, thank God it's not a lot because he didn't take many briefings. He's willing to sell the information that's in his head to any country that's willing to put up a fucking Trump building. And it's all about Donald Trump's pocket. And that, to me, would be an easy treason violation. Well, actually, we're pretty much on the same page on this. Uh, I've said that one of the biggest reasons that Donald Trump poses an ongoing national security threat is that he's going, number one, he's going to continue to get these briefings unless uh, Joe Biden and the administration shut him off from them. And as you and I both know, that would be incredibly controversial if he did so, though he does need to do so. But there'd be a lot of political capital that the Biden administration would have to expend to cut him off from national security briefings. And you and I both know that Donald Trump is immediately going to resume his business activities. So he will be traveling abroad. He will be talking with powerful leaders and agents of powerful leaders to try to get deals done in various countries around the world. And what we've already seen is that Donald Trump will sort of just casually spill intelligence information to impress people to show people how powerful he is, how connected he is, how important it is to be his friend. Remember when he was with uh, Sergey Lavrov 
and Sergei Kisilyak in the Oval Office. And just to impress them, he spilled some classified Israeli intelligence that he had somehow picked up during those few moments when he listened during his briefings. So, you know, I don't think he's necessarily going to publicly go meet with, with foreign autocrats because you're exactly right that you could have not just the, the low end violations like a Logan Act violation, not just the middle end criminal violations like a FARA violation. But while I wouldn't say treason because we're not necessarily in a state of war with these countries, he could face one of the statutes that don't necessarily require violent force to be present between two entities, but simply are an attempt to effectively overthrow our current government through various forms of compulsion. And certainly if Donald Trump has any closed door meetings with agents of let's say MBS or MBZ or Vladimir Putin, and we don't know what's being said there, you better believe the CIA, FBI, CD, uh, DIA, NSA are going to be terrified that he is literally treating with foreign autocrats or their agents as though he's the president of the United States. And why would we think that? Because he's going to spend every day saying that on Twitter and saying that in other various proclamations starting in January, 2021. So we know what he's gonna say behind closed doors because he's gonna say the same thing publicly. Yeah. Well, yesterday you pinned a new tweet at the top of your page that read, this is a big moment for the first time, I believe in its history. I know I've never seen it before. At Bot Sentinel has identified a Twitter account as having 100% untrustworthy rating. The account in question belongs to the president of the United States. Explain to my listeners who Bot Sentinel is and why this particular piece caught your attention enough to pin it to the top of your account. So Bot Sentinel is an extension that you can add to your web browser that will show you based on a bot assessment what the rating is, quote unquote, of various Twitter accounts in terms of being uh, a troll, a troll bot or untrustworthy, meaning that either the content from that particular account is automated or even worse in a sense, it's not automated, but it's all propaganda and inaccurate and intended as a coordinated disinformation campaign. So Bot Sentinel has been around uh, a while. It's currently the most popular, as I understand it, extension of this sort on Twitter. I've been in touch with the man who created Bot Sentinel, and he is basically a, a genius because it changes your Twitter experience so that you can see when you're dealing with someone, are they considered 64% untrustworthy based on an AI assessment of their prior posts? So I had never in my life, and I've been using Bot Sentinel for a very long time, seen any account, and I mean even anonymous MAGA accounts that, that just look bizarre, I had never seen an account assessed as 100% untrustworthy because it would basically mean that every single tweet from that account going back a certain number of days or a certain number of tweets is considered factually incorrect and disinformation or the sort of spreading in a mechanistic way of false information that's known to be produced by foreign troll bots, often connected to foreign governments. So Donald Trump, as you know, Michael, not only tweets a lot himself, but he retweets a lot of QAnon supporters. He retweets people who appear to be troll bot accounts potentially connected to foreign governments. And at this point, Bot Sentinel is warning its users that you should immediately report Donald Trump's Twitter feed 
not share or even comment on any of his tweets because his Twitter account is dangerous. Now, what's interesting about this is whether this sort of assessment is the same assessment that's happening by Jack Dorsey and the folks at Twitter internally, such that when Donald Trump becomes a citizen, a civilian, as it were, on January 20th, 2021 at 12.01 p.m., we have to shut down this account because an account that is so untrustworthy, so consistently um, manifesting a desire to advocate for disinformation and spread disinformation, we have to take this out of the information ecosystem. I think there's a chance, Michael, that Donald Trump doesn't understand how careful he's going to have to be on Twitter starting in January of 2021, and he could get his account suspended or even, uh, you know, trash canned outright. Well, he doesn't care. That's the one thing I can tell you about Trump. Trump doesn't give a shit about anything, right? He he figures, I'm going to do what I want, and I'll deal with the repercussions later or have somebody else deal with the repercussion. But something that you just said, the at POTUS handle for Twitter has to then be taken down because Joe Biden will then have the right to the at POTUS account name. Yeah, the account that was assessed as 100% untrustworthy is the real Donald Trump account. The POTUS account is absolutely going to have to be Joe Biden's account. Here's what I think will happen, Michael, if the real Donald Trump account is suspended or taken down. Donald Trump will, through his Team Trump or other various accounts, he will get out the message that all conservatives should immediately move to parlor, which a lot of conservatives obviously have already done, in the same way that we it, it sort of mirrors his effort to get people to move away from Fox News and go to Newsmax or OANN, uh, you know, One American News Network, or even down the line, if Trump creates his own media empire, to Trump TV. So, so I agree with you. I think that Donald Trump has a, has a backup plan for having his Twitter account, which is his biggest megaphone once he becomes a civilian, taken away from him. And I think his backup plan is to call upon his MAGA warriors to simply move to a different digital space. I don't think he wants to lose that Twitter account, Michael. I think he's got 90 million followers, but I absolutely agree with you that, that he can very seamlessly move into a backup plan. Yeah, because with this in mind, right, does you think that this type of labeling even has any effect anymore as Trump and his fellow conspiracists have a massive, massive right-wing media ecosystem that you were just referring to at their disposal, which is definitely more than willing to run with the worst of the lies. And this in turn, of course, is being consumed by millions and millions of people. And it's filling their minds with pure and utter bullshit and conspiracy theories to the point that, and you mentioned the 70% of Republicans polled believe that the election to have been fraudulent. So that's what he's going to do. And I've said it before, he will create this Trump news network that is very similar to like a CNN or an MSNBC of 24-7 news cycle. It's going to be filled with whatever the fuck Donald Trump wants to put out there. It'll be by moderators like Sean Spicer, right? They'll probably try to bring Sean Hannity over. It will, it will be on the platform of either Newsmax or OANN. I believe Newsmax because Chris Ruddy is a sycophant and has been forever of Trump. And it's in Chris Ruddy's financial interest in order to build this, even if he gives away a majority interest in the company with only 20 million followers at $4.99 a month. They're pulling down $1.2 billion a year. That's Trump's game plan. 
Well, and what he's effectively been doing, Michael, for the last four years is vetting potential candidates who could be hosts on this this new operation, whether it's an independent Trump TV or whether it's connected to Newsmax. You know, Lou, Lou Dobbs will be on there. You know, Kaylee McEnany can be given her own show. He has an ample roster of people who he has elevated into prominence and popularity and given a megaphone to over the last four years. Look, hell, Steve Bannon somehow might have a detente with Donald Trump and he'll end up with a show because Steve Bannon is better for throwing red meat to people and getting eyes on him than than almost anyone, unfortunately. So yeah, it, it will be the most disgusting media operation the United States has ever seen. It will be propaganda for the United States of Magistan that he's going to be trying to run, as you said, and it will be effectively a campaign contribution. And that is the one question I do have is whether that sort of option at some point becomes illegal and you know runs afoul of campaign finance laws because you have an entire media outlet that considers itself a media outlet and exempt from certain campaign finance laws, but is fundamentally an in-kind campaign contribution. So look, I, I see Donald Trump running into all sorts of potential legal difficulties when he leaves office because finally, maybe this country will be willing to hold him accountable either at the state level at a city level, at the federal level, or or frankly, even just media not giving him the same sort of earned media he had before and more openly calling for him to be treated like every other citizen. Well, you could rest assured that um, the attorney general, Tish James, is hot on his trail, as is district attorney Cyrus Vance. Um, They both have active investigations going right now. I've been involved in both, and I can tell you that they are – well-prepared, well-organized, and certainly you will be hearing more from them over the course of time. But yesterday, in response to a particularly frightening Lynn Wood uh, tweet, you wrote, Lynn Wood, a dangerous far-right radical tied to Trump's legal team, tweeted that Trump would soon start jailing people for thwarting his ambitions and in choosing whom to imprison Victims' party affiliation would be a consideration. Trump then stupidly retweeted him. This madness must stop. Do you believe that Trump is truly considering imprisoning his political enemies? Well, let me, let me say two things. Number one, what Donald Trump did was stupid for a number of reasons. One of them is that Lynn Wood, who's connected to Sidney Powell, who was until recently part of Donald Trump's legal team, Lynn Wood has publicly told Republicans in Georgia not to vote in the runoff election on January 5th. So why in the world, if you want Republicans to win those two runoff elections, would you amplify Lynn Wood's voice? It it underscores how angry and bitter and vengeful and delusional and really just a, a total lack of clear thinking on Donald Trump's part to elevate Lynn Wood. Now, do I think as to the substance of that tweet that Donald Trump is going to be in a position to jail anyone over the next five weeks I don't think so, but I would say this. Does he want to scare Republican officials? Does he want to scare Republican politicians in Congress? Does he want to make people understand that he can whip up violent anger against them such that you have Republicans trying to gauge in citizen arrests or even Republican voters who get violent against anyone who opposes Donald Trump, even within the Republican Party, because that Lynn Wood tweet was about the Secretary of State Raffensperger in Georgia and the governor in Georgia, Kemp. Those were the people who 
you know, allegedly were going to be arrested. So no, I don't think anyone's going to get arrested. I think what Donald Trump is doing, he is sending a signal to people who would betray him. Let me tell you what could happen to you. I could tweet about you and say that you should be arrested. I could imply that you should be hurt. Let's remember that Sidney Powell recently tweeted that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris could be executed for treason against the United States and receive, you know, receive capital punishment. And Sidney Powell retweeted someone saying that on Twitter. So there's not just this air of maybe people will somehow be citizen arrested in a violent way or threatened in a violent way, but that actual violence could be done against Republicans who stand against Donald Trump. I think that's his real reason for spreading this this propaganda and spreading these threats is he knows he's going to be, comparatively speaking, powerless starting on January 20th, 2021. So he better start now sending the signal to his potential betrayers that you better not betray me because I still command an army, a, a digital army, and perhaps even a real army of MAGA warriors. Yeah. And look, from somebody who he did it to, had me jailed the second time because I refused to waive my First Amendment constitutional rights and not to publish the book Disloyal, there's no depth that Donald Trump won't sink to. I mean, as I've said to several different reporters, the man is lower than whale shit at the bottom of the ocean. All right. Um, well, Jonathan Lemire of the Associated Press is reporting that President Trump is considering whether to pressure newly named acting attorney general Jeffrey Rosen to name special counsel to investigate Hunter Biden and election fraud, or perhaps even to replace him with someone more likely to do so. Do you believe that Trump will continue to fight up to the last minute to maintain his position, or is he just posturing for his own base? Well, I think what Bill Barr did before quote-unquote resigning, whether he was forced out or resigned of his own free will, isn't entirely clear. But what Bill Barr did for Donald Trump is he taught him a lesson in how you can abuse power in these waning days of the Trump presidency. Because remember, Michael, what Bill Barr did is he made John Durham a special counsel prior to leaving Maine Justice at DOJ, thereby putting John Durham in a position where it's a lot harder for that farcical investigation of the quote unquote origins of the Trump-Russia investigation to be shut down by the Biden administration because Durham now has a special status. Remember also that when Rosen, uh, showed up at DOJ and became the deputy AG the, originally when Barr came in, Rosen's first act was to make sure that Paul Manafort wasn't sent to Rikers. That was the very first thing he did. And everyone who was a, a former DOJ employee who could get in front of a microphone told that DOJ getting involved in where someone is transported to or incarcerated at that level is, is unheard of. So Rosen has already shown himself willing to do Donald Trump's bidding to try to make life more comfortable for Paul Manafort at a time that Donald Trump still would have been concerned that Paul Manafort could flip on him to get a reduced sentence in the first year of his federal sentence. Now Rosen is the acting AG. Donald Trump has this lesson he just learned from Bill Barr about creating ridiculous special counsels. And yes, I am worried that in these waning weeks of the Trump presidency, Trump can do enormous damage. He already did that in the DOD advisory board. He put Cash Patel at the Pentagon. He's putting people in positions that it could be hard to dislodge them from, who he considers loyalists and, loyalists and probably people who he thinks will feed him information should he be cut off from his national security briefings after he leaves office. 
But separate from that, he's learned that you can create special counsels by pressuring DOJ. So yeah, I wouldn't be at all surprised, Michael, if we see a quote unquote special counsel into Hunter Biden as an attempt to basically be an in-kind campaign contribution to Donald Trump's 2024 campaign, because then we'll have this fake investigation that will be in the news all the time, whether or not Donald Trump is for the next four years. And I'm sure that Donald Trump, I, I don't know what your view is, but my guess is he's at least going to announce a 2024 run against Joe Biden. So there's a benefit to attacking Biden's family, whether he goes through with it or not, he doesn't have to decide until 2023. But a special counsel investigation of Hunter Biden would be enormously politically advantageous to Donald Trump, as well as a form of vengeance against Biden for beating him so badly in the popular vote and the electoral college. Yeah, I agree with you. I think he will try to make announcements that he's running, that he's going to announce in 2023, keeping his supporters close and tight and keeping them um, supporting him financially over the course of the next you know, three, four years. But discuss with me for a moment, if you would, what happens to the Republican Party moving forward? I mean, there's the party of Trump, for which he still is commanding a great deal of fear and thus loyalty from so many people. And then there are, of course, the Lincoln Project Republicans. Do they even have a place in this party moving forward? Or do you see them breaking away to maybe a third party, uh, an independent party? Or vice versa, will it be the Trump Republicans who break away? Regardless, you know, the center just can't hold any longer. Well, I don't think that the, the Trump Republicans will break away from the Republican Party because they own the party right now. The Republican Party is the Trump Party. The only question I have on that score, Michael, is whether the Republican Party at some point in the next four years renames itself the Trump Party, because I'm sure that Donald Trump would love to have a party named after him, and he might just have the juice to somehow engage that sort of radical change in the denomination of the Republican Party if he wants to. I don't know if that'll happen, but I think that's more likely to happen than the Trump Republicans feel that they have to bolt a party that they fully own. The Lincoln Project, moderate Republicans, you know, quote unquote, moderate Republicans, I don't think they have any place in this Trump party, this Trumpist Republican Party. And I think there is a real question as to whether at some point they realize that, this re that these really well-produced, really effective digital ads are not enough. They may decide, look, we're only reaching five to 15% of Republicans anymore with these well-produced digital ads, and that's only so effective. Whereas if the Lincoln Project were to create the Lincoln Party and become a third party, no, they wouldn't win any elections for a very long time, but what they could do is peel off 5% to 15% of Republicans in so many elections across the country that they break the back of the Trump party, the Trumpist Republican party. And maybe in time, by causing that party to lose so consistently in elections where their Republican candidates would now be 5% to 15% behind where they normally would be because of the Lincoln party, perhaps in time, the Lincoln party could emerge as a legitimate Republican party because of the fact that they would uh, be creating so much rancor within the Trumpist Republican Party. Or they could do this on a temporary basis. And then once Trump's power is broken because the Trump Party can't win elections anymore, the Lincoln Party reintegrates itself into the Republican Party, trying to become a party more like the party of Ronald Reagan than the party of Donald Trump. So look, a lot of people are saying, and I started saying this years ago, that the Republican Party is at real risk of fracturing in the next 10 years. And it won't be a 50-50 split. It won't fracture in half. 
it'll be that 10 to 15% of Republicans bolt the party. But in our current polarized electoral situation, even losing 5% to 15% of your voters could mean that you now lose something like one third of the elections that you're currently winning at the congressional level and in governor gubernatorial elections and presidential elections. But just think about what you're saying. We're talking, that's over years, which in essence means that virtually every politician that runs on the Democratic platform will be the winner. And, you know, it, it is important that there be differences of opinion, yes. right? As opposed to, because then ultimately what you'll have is you'll have divided Democrats. You'll have those that are, you know, to the right, to the center, and then to the left. And that will just, of course, perpetuate more and more craziness. I mean, this man single-handedly is changing America. And why? I don't know. I mean, it's funny because even his own slogan of make America great again, right? America has always been great. He's the one who's fucked it all up. But I do want to say law and crime recently reported that a Manhattan judge has ordered the Trump organization to turn over documents to New York Attorney General Letitia James about one of the four properties subject to a very broad investigation into whether Eric Trump and others inflated assets to obtain tax benefits. Now, that's something that I brought to the forefront during my House Oversight Committee, as well as to the House um, Permanent Select Committee and the Senate Permanent Select Committees on Intelligence. Handicap for me, if you would, who you believe Letitia James is going to indict first, and who do you believe stands the greatest chance of going to prison? Well, to be honest with you, you know, both in my books and on my Twitter feed, I try to avoid making predictions of that sort. But here's what I will say, Michael. I will say that I agree with you that the, the potential prosecutions being looked into by Cyrus Vance and by Letitia James are the biggest danger to Donald Trump and his family right now. Um, that is the biggest sort of weak point for Donald Trump are his financial transactions and his accounting and the possibility of tax fraud, bank fraud, wire fraud, because for so many of his actions in office, where we think we see, and I think we do see bribery, illegal solicitation of foreign campaign contributions, it's so much harder to prosecute because there's that political cast around all his actions. And the suggestion, as he brought up at his impeachment trial, that he might have a sort of valid foreign policy reason for taking some of his actions. Now, why that would preclude prosecutions for obstruction of justice, making false statements, and, uh, and witness tampering, I don't know, but it could make some of those more politically cast prosecutions hard. But the financial transactions could be the real weak spot. Now, what I'd love to see, and I don't know what you think about this, Michael, is a little bit more conversation about that 2008 land deal in Florida involving Dmitry Rebolovlev and that flip of a property that he Donald Trump purchased for, I think it was around $50 million, and he sold it for $95 million. Rebolovlev is one of Vladimir Putin's chief oligarchs. And there's a real fear among a lot of people that I talk to that what you said about Donald Trump's 2008 purchase in your excellent book, Disloyal, which is that Donald Trump felt that he was really dealing with Vladimir Putin 
and therefore that Donald Trump believed that Vladimir Putin was helping to save him from yet another bankruptcy in 2008. Those are the sorts of deals that involve foreign nationals that I think are as or even more interesting than some of the financial crimes that Letitia James and uh, Cyrus Vance are looking into, because those could be connected to later foreign policy decisions or foreign policy agendas that Donald Trump developed as president that might be otherwise very difficult to get at unless you go through a fact pattern like a 2008 financial transaction, though granted that's 12 years ago, it's harder to sort of work with that sort of older evidence and data. Right. So just to give you a little um, insight into what I was talking about in Disloyal, I don't say that that was a Vladimir Putin purchase through Dmitry Rebolovyev, because I even state that it was not. I mean, the property was sold through Sotheby's Realty. It happens to be that this um, Ukrainian, you know, Russian oligarch um, ended up purchasing it. But ultimately, when he found out who the purchaser was, this this oligarch, he thought, wow, wouldn't that be great if it was Vladimir Putin? So it's more of the mindset that I was trying to get to that he doesn't care whether it's a Vladimir Putin. He doesn't care if it's a Mohammed bin Salman who probably just bailed out 666 Fifth Avenue for Kushner. Or there's a building that Kushner has, the Puck building, that nobody can figure out. And people have tried. Who bought the penthouse? That was certainly an overinflated price. They're all, it will ultimately, it will all come out what they're doing. But these are people that don't care about the United States of America. They don't care about you. They certainly don't care about me. They don't care about anyone except their bottom line. And that's what it's all about. Now, I'd like to just get your take on Bill Barr, going back to what we were just talking about, and his fairly muted resignation. Because I personally found it curious that after carrying the president's water through Mueller and the impeachment and dozens of other small scandals or would-be scandals and daily trespasses upon the Constitution, as well as obstructing his own Justice Department, Bill Barr decided to finally put his fat foot down on election fraud. All of a sudden, right, on election fraud, this is where now I've drawn my line in the sand. So... This after he claimed that there would be widespread fraud prior to the election. Instead, he very plainly repudiated the president. What do you think was happening here? Bill Barr doesn't do anything out of moral character. At least that's my opinion. So he was obviously playing a game. He even went so far to call Trump's tweets a deposed king's ranting. Why has this man with, in my estimation, zero moral compass suddenly found a need to take a moral stand and worse to voice it at this late period in time. Well, I agree with you about Bill Barr. And I think that most people do not because we're sort of guessing at his character, but because we're looking at his actions since he's been the the attorney general. What I would say is that I think that Bill Barr was able to read polls along with the rest of us. And while the polls obviously turned out to be slightly more unfavorable to Donald Trump than they should have been, anyone who was a poll watcher in October of 2020 was looking at Joe Biden leading Donald Trump nationally by about eight to 10 points and leading in almost every single battleground state. So I wonder if Bill Barr didn't see the writing on the wall 
that there wasn't going to be a second Trump administration, that he was not going to be continuing as attorney general, that there might be significant investigations of his actions as well as Donald Trump's actions once the new administration comes into power. And particularly whether Donald Trump, or excuse me, Bill Barr, wasn't concerned about the sort of pardons that we might see in the final days of the Trump presidency. And he wanted to be as far from Washington DC as possible when these pardons are issued. Because Michael, you and I both know that these pardons are not going to be highly controversial, merely highly controversial, like let's say Bill Clinton's pardons were admittedly highly controversial. These pardons that we're about to see from Donald Trump will be obscene. They will be historically obscene, historically corrupt pardons. There will be criminal investigations, I believe, of at least some of these pardons. There will be litigation over the validity of the pardons that are coming. And I think you have to ask, did Bill Barr want to be any part of the DOJ and be a key witness in these cases as the final decisions are being made about a pardon? Or did he want to try to create a little bit of goodwill with people who could be investigating his actions down the line in terms of obstruction of justice by saying there was no election fraud, by fairly applying what actually was an extraordinary order by him that there couldn't be any investigations, not just that you couldn't reveal any investigations, that there couldn't be any investigations of anyone connected to any presidential candidate in the lead up to the election. So frankly, there is a question as to why the Hunter Biden investigation even was happening, given the edict that Bill Barr set out there. But by fair-handedly, at least from the outside looking in, not allowing information about that investigation to come out, maybe he, he sort of built up a little bit of goodwill on Capitol Hill, such that he'll have a little bit of an easier time in any pardon investigations or other Trump-era investigations that we see from the Biden DOJ. So my, my feeling on that is Bill Barr is too, it's too little and way too late for it. Now, in regard to the pardon situation, I want to pose something different to you. I don't believe that Trump is going to do as many pardons as the press are releasing. And there's a reason why. Because we spoke when I was first being investigated about the concept of pre-pardons. It was something Jay Sekulow had conversation with my counsel and myself. And the big problem with the pardon, as I'm sure you're aware, is that you lose your Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. So Knowing how we, I know Donald Trump and knowing how I've expressed to my listeners and to the world about Donald Trump's psyche, here's the thing. He will never do anything for anyone unless it benefits him. And not just benefits him by a little bit. It has to really benefit him. So will he give his son-in-law a pre-pardon? Will he give Ivanka a pre-pardon? Or Don Jr. or Eric or Bill Barr or any of them? Paul Manafort, right? Will he give any of them a pre-pardon or a pardon in this case? Because that could put him in greater legal jeopardy. And for even if it's a 1% chance, Donald Trump won't do it because that's the kind of person that he is. So, so Michael, so I, I agree with you on the legal analysis that there are, and as you know, I was a, I'm a practicing, I was, I was a practicing attorney for many years. I'm still an attorney now. And, and I agree with your legal analysis. I would say that there are real, real uh, legal complications. But here's what I would say in response, Michael. Um, look at the Michael Flynn case, a test case for that theory. Everything that you just said also would have applied to Michael Flynn. And Michael Flynn, remember, did not just get a pardon 
for making false statements to the FBI. He did get a preemptive pardon for any information that was known or could have been known to any of the Mueller investigators, according to the language of the Flynn pardon. So, so I agree with you that from a legal standpoint, you could argue that Donald Trump shouldn't have pardoned Michael Flynn because it creates exactly that same legal situation. But he did pardon Michael Flynn. So whatever advice he's getting or not getting or listening to or not listening to in the White House, the test case we have is that he believes that a pardon will keep people loyal enough to him that perhaps he believes they will lie down the line for him if they face questioning now that they have a pardon. So I see that as a test case that could apply to Kushner, Eric Trump, Donald Trump Jr., Paul Manafort, and others. I don't know what you think about that, but that's that's how I see the Flynn case. Except for that Michael Flynn was really not involved in a lot because of this all happening so early on in the administration. And even as far as the campaign was concerned, he was just a guy who came up on stage and waved his hand and Trump would tout him as this general that is supporting me and my support for the military. So Flynn was a really good bet for Trump to show people that I will pardon you because I have the right as the president, but he doesn't have the requisite information in order to bring Trump's fat ass down, you know, but I, I want to switch gears for one second here um, and talk about Ben Shapiro, because I, I can't stand listening to his voice, let alone the bullshit that he spews on a daily basis. He, in all fairness, Ben Shapiro reminds me of the kid in high school who spent his entire four years getting wedgies in the locker room. And he's now sort of exacting revenge on everyone he believes has wronged him, you know, reveling in his self-appointed status as a right wing intellect and a provocateur. You seem to have a particular distaste for him at this moment in relation to his ridiculous stance on Dr. Jill Biden's credentials. And now I'm curious, though, how Shapiro was viewed by his colleagues and other journalists in general and why he seems to foment so much ire. Well, I, I tend to think that my opinion of Ben Shapiro is probably pretty universal on the left, which is that he's not a journalist. He's a provocateur. Uh, his, his arguments and his lines of reasoning are basically laughable. But the reason that's the case is that they are intended to be laughable. He is essentially a troll. He trolls the left for money. He trolls the left for attention. He's gotten very successful in terms of New York Times bestselling books and in terms of his podcast by trolling the left. Um, and he states his arguments so authoritatively, which is why it is so funny that he was talking about himself as a lawyer and as a Harvard Law School graduate and that he would never call himself a doctor when, of course, as you know, Michael, you know, lawyers never refer to themselves as doctors because the Juris Doctor is what we call a gentleman's a doctorate. It's not a, it's not a research doctorate. It's at best a professional doctorate. But of course, it's not really even that because you can get a PhD in the law. You can get an SJD. And so his argument about Jill Biden was, was just frankly trolling. And I pointed that out. I think I particularly had a, a bee in my bonnet as it were over that because he and I share um, an alma mater. And because of the fact that I happen to also have a PhD in addition to a JD. And so I just thought his argument was particularly preposterous. But I largely try to ignore Ben Shapiro because he's really just, you know, a gnat on the ass of democracy who has gotten rich. And, you know, 
good for him. He's able to to fool a lot of people on the right, but mostly on the left, we should just be ignoring him. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Now, you recently retweeted the ridiculous Dan Crenshaw video that was entitled Georgia Reloaded, which shows him as some kind of a superhero, single-handedly fighting radical leftists in some anarchic future. I mean, because to me, the whole thing is fucking preposterous and stupid. And I urge everybody who's listening to just watch it if you really want to have a good laugh. But what I can't get over is that a good part of his base actually believes this to be an accurate portrayal of the future. Talk to me about this. Well, I think Dan Crenshaw, because he's a veteran, um, because he also is a provocateur who nevertheless is able to seem very reasonable when interviewed. I mean, he's been interviewed by Chris Cuomo on CNN many times. He comes off as sort of generally congenial and likable. He's got that military background. I think he's sort of a rising star in the Trumpist Republican Party, where these sorts of strongman figures who could appear in a video like this because he's you know relatively in shape, because he's a veteran, because I think that the Trumpist Republican Party wants to portray you know strong strength in foreign policy, because that creates at least a link to the legacy of the old Republican Party, which was seen as being very strong, you know, on foreign policy. Look, I think that's why Michael Flynn is considered such a major figure in the Trumpist Republican Party. And while why he is likely to have some sort of a role, I don't know what going forward, because he's a former general. Now, it, it happens to be the case that everyone who worked with him considered him bizarre and strange and a little creepy. And he had odd views. And he was involved in a lot of shenanigans with Donald Trump in 2015 and 2016, not with regard to financial matters, but with regard to the foreign policy agenda that the Trump campaign set. And so for that reason, I think he'll continue to be popular. But look, everyone's wondering who's going to be the next big Trumpist star. Now, I tend to think that Donald Trump will only allow it to be someone from his family. I think it's going to be Ivanka or it's going to be Laura Trump who might run for the Senate in North Carolina, Ivanka Trump, they're talking about her running for Senate in Florida, Donald Trump Jr., who's obviously a moron, as you often point out, uh, or at least he's seen that way by his father and he often acts that way, might run for either Senate or governor in Montana. And so I do think we're going to see an attempt by Donald Trump to create a sort of dynasty here. But if he's not able to get his kids to go into politics, the next best thing are former military veterans. Look at Josh Hawley, look at Tom Cotton, look at uh, you know Mike Pompeo, who was at the CIA. Dan Crenshaw is another example of a, a white man of a certain age with a military background who can project that Trumpist strength that I know attracts the president's eyes so much. Yeah. Well, the problem with, you know, the kids coming into politics is they think that they're their father. I spoke about this on my last podcast with uh, Emily Jane Fox, where I described them as like Voltron. They're like three little mini bots that form to make one big stupid Donald bot, right? The Voltron bot. And the difference though, is while they each have a specific characteristic, right? Like Ivanka likes to be a show person. She really is not bright, right? Don Jr., interestingly enough, is probably innately the brightest of them all. Eric is the least with Ivanka is just the phoniest, very much like her father is a showman. So each one has a very specific characteristic, but they're not their father. Somehow, this fucking guy manages 
to fight everybody tooth and nail not to release his tax returns, not to release any information on him, on his company. They allegedly put the company into a trust, but yet he's operating the trust from the White House, which we saw when he was signing the checks to pay me back the money that I had put out on behalf of Stormy Daniels and other that we were calling as a retainer. None of this matters somehow because it's Donald Trump. In essence, he's like Teflon Don, right? But the kids aren't. Now, I'd like to see how Ivanka and Jared made $60 million last year, how they just paid for a $30 million property in Miami, Florida, right? Don Jr., how is he surviving? All of their transactions having to become disclosed, I think poses a huge problem for them, not to mention the dumbest of them all has to be Laura Trump. I mean, this is a girl who tried to bribe Amorosa, right, with $15,000 a month to keep your mouth shut that's going to be paid for by the RNC, in essence paid for by the supporters who don't have money, right, especially during this pandemic, that are continuously feeding this, you know, this um, machine that Trump has created. But as we're winding down the hour, I, I want to bring up to you, on December 13th, you tweeted, Donald Trump Jr., that appears to be our favorite topic at the moment, spent weeks waxing poetic about how peaceful Trumpists are. But just as soon as the Supreme Court of the United States would not hand daddy the presidency, the very same white supremacist mob that his daddy publicly called on to stand by launched a terrifying stabathon in the District of Columbia. Now, I'm curious if you believe that this violence will intensify the closer we get to the inauguration. And what do you think that we should do about it? Well, I'll say this, Michael. Um, it's not just that 70 percent to 80 percent of Republican voters believe that Donald Trump won the election and is the rightful president. It's that roughly that percentage of Republican voters believe that he will stay in office believe the fact that he won in their view, which of course he didn't, will lead to him actually having a second administration. So what I worry about is, is not the, the low level of violence, though of course it's incredibly dangerous and unsettling, that we see on December 14th when the Electoral College voted, or even that we might see on January 6th when Congress, both the Senate and the House, vote for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to be president and, and vice president uh, when they confirm the electoral college votes. I worry what happens on January 20th when 70% to 80% of Republican voters wake up and realize Donald Trump is not second term and perhaps accept that for the first time. That's when I think we could see a sort of ongoing low level for a period of time of civil disturbance that will be amped up by Donald Trump ensconced in Mar-a-Lago talking about himself as the rightful president. I think that's why you and I both talk about Donald Trump as an ongoing national security threat, not just what he's gonna do abroad in his business dealings, but what is he going to be saying to his supporters who believe that there was a coup and that he's the rightful president, that's that's when I think we might see, again, a sort of low level, not any large operation necessarily, but a low level of civil disturbance that, that something's going to have to be done about because we're all going to know where it's emanating from. And it's the tweets and the public statements of Donald Trump, citizen, non-president. Yeah, it's I, I agree with you completely. But just just to touch as we close down, think about it for a second. Every day, the man will be entitled to some sort of a briefing. And, you know, the old expression, loose lips sink ships. While Biden administration is going to be out there doing what they can in order to bring the country together, 
he's out there trying to continue to divide it, while the Biden administration will have individuals out there trying to refriend our allies and put our adversaries back where they belong, Donald Trump will be out there doing the exact opposite. And that's why I had said to the members of the Biden administration who I know, Joe Biden has to step away and he has to allow an attorney general to legitimately prosecute or look into all the allegations that have that have brought themselves um, over the course of the past four years, like the witness tampering, like what he did to me, like obstruction of justice, like what he did to me. These are all things that I believe the American people care about. Nobody cared about whether we gave $400 million to Ukraine on Monday or Friday, or we never gave it to them. Nobody gave a shit. But when it comes to obstruction of justice and witness tampering and all of the nefarious things that these people are doing. I mean, Mike Pompeo, just another another just sycophantic fool that's just out there creating this problem. I'm really concerned that when he's sitting in Magistan over there with his supporters, he will use the information that he gets at eight o'clock in the morning, nine o'clock in the morning. He will use it throughout the day because it's on his mind. And he's willing to share this information with any member at Mar-a-Lago that wants to kiss his ass. And who knows who these people are, right? We saw a Chinese woman try to infiltrate Mar-a-Lago. There are plenty of people that have relationships outside of the country that Donald Trump neither knows about nor cares about. So I do think that he is a national security risk. I also will reaffirm what I said before. They need to pull his security clearance. I don't care how devastating people may think that it is. I don't believe that any of the Democrats that voted for Joe Biden would find that to be improper. Well, and I agree with you, Michael, that any federal investigation that comes when Donald Trump uh, leaves the White House needs to be both independent and nonpartisan with no involvement whatsoever by Joe Biden. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think it needs to be far ranging. It needs to include obstruction, witness tampering, making false statements, as well as bribery, aiding and abetting, uh, illegal solicitation of foreign campaign donations, uh, and, and so on. All the things that we've been talking about, possibly even um, you know conspiracy to commit election fraud or other type of fraud actions alongside those investigations by the Manhattan DA and by the New York Attorney General. Of course, those need to continue and be as independent and apolitical as they possibly can be. But yes, we are going to, as a country, Michael, starting on January 20th, 2021, be dealing with a national security threat. And we need to start talking about that national security threat right now, because you can't just start talking about it or dealing with it once it arises. We can foresee it now, and we better prepare for it now. Well, I agree with you, Seth. Thank you so much brilliant insight. I guess that's why you have a PhD on top of your JD. And I have next to mine what's called SDL, which is stupid did lousy in school. So Seth, I really appreciate your time and your insight. And thank you so much. Great talking to you, Michael. And now for today's mea culpa. I'm thinking about the big lie which sits at the heart of President Trump's claims that the election was unfairly stolen from him. I think back to the countless lies that I myself helped construct and propagate for his benefit. In Trump's mind, truth is elastic and it must bend to the reality that best suits the moment. The idea that there is some greater truth was for suckers. He also decides what is true and what is not true. It was under these circumstances that I would be dispatched to create whatever the truth needed to be at that particular moment. But here's the thing. 
The big lie, as much as it is besmirched, the truth was inevitably the extension of Trump's own ego. His biggest lies were those that obscured any trace of weakness for fear of looking like a dreaded loser. It was in this context that I inflated his assets to make him appear wealthier than he was. Securing him a spot on the Forbes list of billionaires became a yearly project for which nothing was out of bounds. Then the lies grew and so did the crimes required to support them. In this capacity, I created a blueprint in how to weaponize the big lie and make it into a reality. And this is what we are now reckoning with. The tactics I used a decade ago to help the president distort reality are being deployed on an unfathomable scale, aided and abetted by a right-wing media ecosystem happy to amplify whatever comes out of the president's mouth. Some mornings I wake up scarcely able to breathe as I ponder the forces that I helped set in motion a decade prior. Nowadays, my focus is on helping extinguish the flames that have engulfed our democracy as Trump's big lie eats away at everything it touches. I see also how it corrodes individuals as well as institutions, how the lie forces you to act counter to your very instincts, and how it becomes a beast that cannot be tamed. But it starts with people like me, who willingly spread those lies and allowed them to compound. To stop the big lie, you must hold those bad actors who spread the lie accountable for their actions. Thanks for listening, and happy holidays. Maya Culpa is brought to you by LSJ Media and Audio Up, in association with Midas Touch, and it's hosted by me, Michael Cohen, produced by Audio Up by Jimmy Jelnick, and executive producer Jared Gustav, and it's edited by Tyler Dawson. Please stay tuned as we focus on the changing political moment and this unprecedented transfer of power. I'll be with you every step of the way. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth. We gotta put our trays up for takeoff. Where's Dad? Oh, he's in the back. We could only get three seats together. Daddy has my pillow. Okay, well, we'll get it later. Can you not put your feet up, please? Why aren't we going? I'm not sure, honey. We must be in line for takeoff. Like security? Well, that was a different line. I have to go. We just sat down. But I have to go. The seatbelt sign's on. Why aren't we moving? Hey, no kicking. We're just 15th in line for takeoff. Son of a... Don't go there. Go on a real vacation. Go RVing.